Hello, how are you all getting on? Thanks for listening to this University of Brighton podcast. This week, again in collaboration with Brighton and Sussex Medical School, run jointly by the Universities of Brighton and Sussex. This is the second of our coronavirus Q&A podcasts. Thanks for getting your questions in. Our guest this week is Dr. Chi Ezuefula, Senior Lecturer in Infection at BSMS and an Honorary Consultant in Infectious Diseases and Microbiology at Brighton and Sussex University's Hospitals NHS Trust. Hi, Dr. Chi. How are you finding everything? Um, I'm well, thanks, Richard. Good to, good to see you. It's nice to see people uh, remotely on Zoom. <laughs> so are you, in, are you in practice at the moment as well too? What, what, what's morale generally like? Yes, I am in practice as a doctor um, currently. Um, curr- we've had some time to prepare for this, which is um, which has helped us work better. So I think there's actually quite high morale currently um, in the hospital. Um, staff are supporting each other, and we're putting sort of learning novel systems in place. And I think that that teamwork or that necessity to really step up is is keeping morale up at the moment. So we're in a positive space at the moment. Sounds good to hear. Um, I guess before we fire away, can you give us a brief outline of of your background, what you've done in the past and and your specialism? Sure. So I'm I'm a a clinical academic. So I work as a doctor, a consultant doctor in the hospital. And I also do research as an academic. I've been mainly in tropical medicine and malaria and global public health. So I'm a malariologist um, and I focus on epidemiology as well and clinical trials. So studying studying drugs and how they work in people. Um, so we threw out to, to students and staff for their questions on the coronavirus. We'll try and get through as many as possible in around half an hour or so. So if you're happy, we're gonna we're gonna fire away. First question is from Hannah, a history, literature, and culture student. She asks, when is the virus likely to peak in the UK based on what we know at the moment? At the moment, we are in lockdown, and the aim of that lockdown is to actually delay the peak slightly and to make it lower, so the flat, flattening the curve. Um, and we there's some some really nice data from a, a paper a paper from the team at Imperial College um, and the lead author is Neil Ferguson, um, which which shows what that what that delaying tactic might look like and 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 shows that if we do if we were to lock down and do social distancing and quarantining of people who are symptomatic and whole family quarantine when people are symptomatic and shut down shut down the schools and stop people going to work and working increase working from home then that should delay the actual peak time at the moment we're probably expecting the peak would be may june with the measures that we've got in place at the moment so the the next question really is uh from this is an anonymous question do you think this is more of a personal view, I guess. Do you think the lockdown restrictions will, will get stricter, should they be? Because we're all getting used to these new restrictions, aren't we? And we, I think yeah. these uncertainty of not knowing when it's going to finish is, is probably what's on a lot of people's minds. That's Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, and it, it is difficult to, to deal with that uncertainty. Um, it's worth thinking about why, why, we're, why we need to lock down at all with this virus. Um, and there are three main reasons for that. So the fact is that we, it can be transmitted asymptomatically. So when people are out and about feeling well, we know that just before symptoms start, people are actually infectious. So the lockdown is to really reduce the chance of, of that. Another reason is because it is very infectious. It's got a high reproductive rate. So um, one person can transmit the virus to, to, 
to more than two people probably and probably more like four four people so um <clears throat> so it's very infectious so lockdown lockdown should help and also uh, thirdly it has a long incubation period so you can get infected but it takes quite a while can take a while to actually get infectious and to get symptoms mm -hmm. so um the lockdown is important for doing that but why but whether they should whether it should, whether this is strict enough what we're doing now we're not we don't quite yet know because we're only a week or so into the lockdown um it looks like it is beginning to to reduce that infectiousness so for each new case we think we might be getting it, the curve might be might be beginning to flatten that we might be getting fewer new cases um, so that might mean it's strict enough um, but the real the real reason for that is the lockdown is to stop the NHS from getting overwhelmed so that the the proof in the pudding is um, if the, the restrictions are strict enough if the NHS doesn't get overwhelmed so it's a yeah we have to predict whether it is whether that is the case or not I think at the moment we've never taken such drastic measures and um, there are neg potentially negative Im implications from being in lockdown uh, on people's health, on physical and mental health, and also risks to people who are vulnerable, um, and obviously risks to the economy. So um, personally, I'm, I'm hoping that we don't need to get stricter um, in order to protect people from the negative impact of even more strict lockdown. In terms of the duration, I think we are in for quite a long series of or long duration of this lockdown and a long series of lockdowns yeah i think that comes down to the the next question actually which is from lucy who asks that once these social distancing rules are eased are we likely to have a second peak or even more more than more than one no, i'm afraid so yes um because what lockdown does is it stops people who haven't been infected it stops those people from getting in contact with people who are infected, hopefully. But the problem is that means that those people don't get immunity. So um, lockdown doesn't help us get what the so-called herd immunity. So as soon as lockdown is lifted, that, uh, then people who haven't been exposed to the virus can get exposed, meaning there'll be th that there can be many more cases. And um, that's what the models are predicting. And we really need to look at China now because China's just done excellently with mitigating the, the outbreak there. Um, and now are starting to relax restrictions um, in, in Wuhan, which was the epicenter. Um, but that needs to be done really carefully because you can get another peak when you relax the restrictions. And that peak could even be bigger than the peak that's already, that they've already had if it's not done carefully. Right. So we're in for the long haul on this one, as we keep being told as well in these in these daily briefings that we're seeing um, from from number 10. And Mark asks, how much difference will testing make to beating the virus? And can you screen an entire population with the antibody test? OK, so testing is really, really important um, and a good question about whether we can screen the whole the whole population. Um, but we, it's crucial to test um, it enables us to know um who's got who's got the infect who's got the virus um and and how whether the in interventions that we're using are actually working at all um and it also lets us helps us to predict where we are where we're where to know where we are on the curve and to predict what's going to be happening next so at the moment we've just got this pcr test and that tests whether people actually have the virus now 
So it looks for the RNA, which is the genetic material of the virus, and sees whether it's in a person's nose or throat when they're swabbed. Um, and that, but what's going to be more helpful is to know whether people have had the infection. So how many, how many people in the population have had it? And that's, that will be through antibody tests. Um, so and we, what we want to know from the antibody tests is who's had it, but also what is their level of immunity or the, what, was, had their, what has their immune response been to, to the virus? Um, and that will let us know whether people are getting immunity and so, so we're likely to be, there's likely to be less transmission in, in the community. And there are several antibody tests already now in the pipeline, which is really encouraging. It's easier to test antibody tests than it is to test the, the PCR test that we have at the moment. It should be a little cheaper and more easy to access and more sort of widely. Um, but I don't think we can test the entire population. That's logistically huge. Um, um, in, in, so in cost and logistics, it's a, it's a, it's a big undertaking. Um, but what we would do is we would hopefully roll out testing of large, purport, large um, groups in the population so we can, can have an idea and then use that for modelling to see how, who is infected. Um, and there's one country that's, um, that has, is, is, so different countries are testing uh, to different extents. So some, some countries are testing really avidly and rolling out larger number of tests in some countries like the UK, so maybe lower than other countries. Um, and Iceland in particular is, is testing a large proportion of the population. Um, and the advantage of testing is also that we get to know how the virus is behaving. So we get to what's really important is to know the denominator. So when we compare the number of cases or the number of deaths, we know what that compares to. So the number of either negatives or the number of people who've had the, had the virus but been asymptomatic. So they, didn't, they wouldn't have had a test normally because they haven't had symptoms. So when we, so, um, a country like Iceland um, uh, with really high testing rates can show us how, how, how deadly the virus actually is more reliably than if larger proportions of the population are, being, are not being tested. So in Iceland we're, we're getting data out that suggests that the case fatality rate, the number of uh, deaths per case, is, is probably a lot lower than, in, than the numbers that we're getting um, for, um, from other countries who are only testing people who have symptoms. Interesting. Um, a qu question from uh, Nina. Nina asks, is it true the virus is also airborne? This virus is mostly droplet spread. So droplet, it means that it's spread through wet droplets that we, we spread out into the air, spray into the air when we cough or we sneeze or we talk. Um, and also we can we can wipe those droplets on our hands and cross contaminate things like um, that we touch. Um, but and so droplet spread doesn't stay in the air for very long. Um, and um, and it, it's um, it's mostly spread by close contact. But airborne infections are more of a concern because they can hang in the air for longer. So you need different interventions to protect from airborne infections. So this is mainly not an airborne infection, um, but in certain circumstances, um, it can stay in the air for longer. And that's when people produce aerosols. So that's when um, a large amount of air is blown out through the respiratory tract, through the airway, um, and then smaller droplets can stay in the air for longer. Um, and they can float in the air, but that's mostly in situations in hospital. So when someone's um, having a, a tube put down to be ventilated, that's an example of an aerosol generating procedure. 
So we don't, um, so in most situations in sort of normal life or out and about, people aren't producing aerosols. So, so with that, with that in mind, sorry, with that in mind, uh, I, I mean, there's lots of conflicting advice about face masks, obviously. Um, and uh, we're starting to see some difference in research here. But I mean, if it's not airborne, is there much need to wear a mask in out when you, especially when you're out in the open? Or is it mainly a good thing to protect yourself from touching your face? Okay, great question. Really, really important. Um, so face masks mostly should be used to protect others from 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 ourselves if we have the infection so that's to because because they catch the droplets and it, it stops us being able to project the droplets out um, to other people so the the, the the intervention of face masks is all about protecting others they're not very good at protecting us from getting the infection from somebody else so wearing a face mask is not as effective um, if you walk around to stop you getting the virus, it's all about you stopping you from transmitting the virus to other people, remembering that you can transmit it without symptoms as well. And the face masks are about protecting the vulnerable. At the moment, we're not advising widespread use. I suppose there may be a scenario, and some countries have used it, when they think that a large proportion of the population probably do have the virus. And in those countries, we saw it in China earlier on, people were encouraged to wear a face mask when they went out and about. Um, and if we were to relax social distancing, it may be that more people will be encouraged to wear face masks if they think they've got symptoms to stop them spreading to other people. Um, again, not to protect themselves, but to protect other people. Um, so, but at the moment, we're, that we're, we're not advising that. And, and it's really important to know that wearing a face mask isn't about protecting yourself from getting the, the, the virus. Okay, um, this one is anonymous. If you're if you have symptoms um, and you believe you may have the virus, um, but it's not serious enough to to go to hospital, what would the home remedies be? Okay, good question. Home remedies. Um, so there aren't at the moment. We don't have um, any home or hospital uh, proven treatments for for COVID nineteen. Um, so. Um, Perhaps, but what, what's, what makes sense is to just boost your immune system so that if you get it, you might be in a better position and might be more able to fight it off. Um, um, and so what I would really recommend in that situation is eat good quality food, that's sort of a variety of vegetables and fruits and sleep. Sleep is really good for the immune system. It boosts the immune system um, and exercise, which also boosts the immune system. So try to support your, your immune system. And then also try not to do things which waste your body's immune, immune response. So not that, um, for example, don't smoke and don't take in toxins um, that kind of waste your body's detoxing capacity. So rather than taking supplements or, um, or home remedies, I'd advise people to do those really basic things. So eat well, sleep well and exercise. And also don't buy drugs online. I don't encourage that. Um, they, they can be, they could be fake drugs. They may not be approved and regulated. Um, and also self-dosing can be dangerous because drugs interact. Um, when if you see a headline about a certain drug that might work, it may not have actually been tested for COVID-19. When drugs are tested and are effective, they'll be available on the NHS. Good advice. 
Um, quite a few people have asked a variation of this question, but Julie asks, if you contract coronavirus acutely, is there any long-term damage to your lungs? Okay, so uh, not, definitely not for the vast majority of people. So most people who get COVID-19 will either not know they had it because they'll, they'll be asymptomatic or they'll have a, a mild illness and then they will recover. Obviously, we're hearing a lot of really alarming coverage in the news about severe cases, but mo many people are, are contracting the, the infection and are recovering. And in those situations, we don't expect there to be any long term effect on the lungs. But in cases that are severe, severe enough to be on life support and need ventilating, we are seeing that in that severe stage of the disease, that lungs get damaged enough to get scarred and, and, and so a process called fibrosis happens. And it's we have we haven't got long-term data yet so we don't yet know whether uh, because we, the virus has only been around for a, a couple of months now three you know three a few months so we haven't got that long-term data to say whether there will be long-term damage but what i'd predict is that in people who've had really severe cases there may be some indeed some long-term sequelae um, photography student Amber asks, is it true the more you're exposed to the virus, the more severe it is if you get it? Well, actually, lots of viruses um, work a bit like that, um, that um, the, well, the higher dose that you get of a virus, then the more likely, A, that you'll get infected and B, that you could get more severe disease. So that's why social distancing is important to not get close to the, as close to the virus or getting a high dose. Um, and it's also why Unfortunately, healthcare workers um, are probably contracting the infection because they're closer to people who, who do have the disease and a higher risk of a high dose. Um, if you think about something like chickenpox, um, if you get a, um, the first child in a household will get a milder uh, form of chickenpox, and it's often the second child who gets the high, more severe case because they are in close contact with a case. So someone um, that the, the other child's are coughing on them and, and contaminating them. So, so you get, indeed, yes, so um, um, the more you're exposed, the more severe the infection could be, potentially. In terms of the more frequency of exposure, if that's what um, the question is about, um, hopefully of, of second exposure, if you've already been exposed to the virus and, and had it, in the second exposure, you shouldn't really get it because you should have some immunity. This one is a, an anonymous question, but why, the question is, why do conditions such as diabetes increase vulnerability? Okay, great. Yeah, a very important question. So, yeah, co the comorbidities or the, 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 the conditions that make you more vulnerable to, to COVID. So first of all, um, some of those conditions make people's immune system that uh, work less well. Um, so something like in diabetes, for example, there is a slightly less strong immune system uh, or, or um, blood cancers or people who are on immune suppressive drugs um, or have certain autoimmune conditions. So, um, and in those situations, the immune system's not work working very well in the first place. So if an infection comes along, the immune system's not in a very good state or a strong enough state to fight off that infection. So the infection can be more severe. The other issue is that um, even without the lower immune system, but some other, some other conditions, the, the organs, vital organs in the body aren't functioning well. Um, so in order to survive the infection, the heart or the lungs need to be strong in order to fight it off. The vital organs may be less, less well able to, to fight off the infection. 
for example, diabetes can affect the heart and can affect the kidneys and, and you're less in a position to fight it off. Then thirdly, um, the immune system itself can, um, the response to infection can make the underlying disease worse. So if you've got um, heart disease and you get an infection, um, then the response, then, then, then um, the, inf the inflammation of, uh, caused by the infection can cause more damage. So it could be a higher risk of getting a heart attack because of inflammation caused by the infection. And then there's another condition, so high, hypertension is a bit very specific to COVID-19. Um, high blood pressure puts you at risk of, 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 of more severe disease, from, it's very clear, from COVID-19. And that's um, because the virus uses um, the ACE2 receptor to get into cells, and that's, that's um, upregulated when you have high blood pressure. The virus can get into cells more easily, and it can also cause more severe disease. I think we've got you more of an audience. We've got a bit more of an audience with us here as well now, Chi. I'm just trying to, to usher my students out. <laughs> That's okay. Omar asks, and again, this is another popular one, uh, is, is the vaccine a solution? And when it's ready, how long would that realistically take to distribute? Okay, so I hope so. I hope a vaccine will be a solution. We don't, because it's early on, we don't know how strong people's immune response is going to be to this virus. So hopefully when you get infected um there you you have a you can get a, st a strong immune response that means you're, you're immune to getting it again and that's what we'd want a vaccine to trigger um really effective um immunity um something like influenza mutates very it's an unstable virus and it mutates so even though we have a vaccine we have to create a new vaccine for the next wave of the outbreak um, and so we don't know how stable this novel coronavirus is going to be, whether, whether it will mutate um, and whether a, vac a putative vaccine um, will be effective in the long term. We also need to know whether the va a vaccine would work in different groups. So we know that um, vaccine responses to vaccines vary between, when you're between sex of the male or female um, and also um, age. So some vaccines work better for children, but they don't work as well for adults and vice versa. So I really hope that a vaccine will work. I think it's important in the meantime that we also have drugs that reduce severity of disease. And there are a lot coming sort of in the pipeline, uh, a lot of clinical studies um, in the pipeline to assess drugs. But also when a vaccine's um, available, um, we've got vac we've, we already have vaccine candidates. So the, the virus was um, sequenced in January really quickly, really impressive. So we know all of the, the, the components of, of, the, of the virus now um, on a molecular level. And that means that very quick work was done to, to work out what parts of the virus we could target to make a vaccine. Um, um, but to actually get a vaccine out that works in a population is, is very much more than just developing a vaccine candidate. It needs to be tested first on small groups, then on larger groups of people, then in these different groups of people. And we need to know whether it works and we also need to know whether it's safe. And that all takes a long, a long time. Um, and it's probably going to be at least 18, 12 to 18 months minimum, possibly two years before we have that safely approved vaccine, I suspect. And then everyone wants it at the same time, of course. Yes. Mm, that's a difficulty. And um, this is another one on, on, on vaccines, uh, another anonymous one. If a country, if, a, if someone finds a vaccine from a certain nation, will they share that immediately or only look after themselves first? It's a crucial. Question. Yeah. yeah, really, really crucial question. So I think at the moment, um, there's a lot of 
competition uh, between countries to be the first to identify either drugs or vaccine or a vaccine. Um, but there's also really impressively a lot of cooperation. And, um, and, and I, I think there's been the, the whole nature of this pandemic is that our world is very interlinked and that response in one area um, predicts the outcome in another area of the world. So we're all dependent on, on each other. And I think that's a really huge message that's coming out with this pandemic. Um, already large bodies like the WHO and, and um, vaccine um, um, agencies are predicting that we're going to need mechanisms to roll out a vaccine if it works uh, at scale and to ensure that um, regions or countries that may usually be left out of, of, um, of access to things to vaccines are included because we, it depends logically it, we all depend on on, on a, an effective vaccine being rolled out globally so that, so that there's no more there's no resurgence yeah. Um, Alex asks, why are we seeing a mix of younger people dying now from the virus when we were told at the start it was more dangerous for older and vulnerable people? Yeah, it's very disturbing to hear um, about these tragic cases in, 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 at any age. And, and, and also we're hearing about some younger cases recently. Um, it's important to, um, to get um, perspective on the range of cases we've seen across the whole world and definitely still. Um, the majority of cases of, of deaths are in older people, um, and um, we've had no deaths in under under 11s or under 12 year olds, and that that seems to be borne out very clearly on the large numbers, the large amount of data we've had across the world. So it definitely still is the case that older people are more at risk. I don't know the in the details of the individual cases of the of the younger children who've who've died sadly, um, and they didn't have obvious um, risk factors um, for severe disease but it is important to know um, about the individual cases and why what may have what may have led to a more severe presentation in those cases. Mm. Gemma asks are you scared at the moment to work in clinical practice during this pandemic? Um, well I can't be complacent of course um, I, I deal with um, my job is about is uh, to treat people who who are proven whose tests are, to tests are positive for COVID so who do have the disease um, and and we've seen lots of deaths in healthcare, well, a number of deaths in healthcare workers across the world, and we're seeing um, healthcare workers already in our in the UK um, who have severe disease and are on life support on ITU. So um, I don't have any complacency at all. Um, um, and um, yeah, it's important that uh, we're focused and that we have the right protective gear and and really good systems in place and, and how we work that kind of leads into the next question actually from sam who's who asks are, are you seeing we're seeing a lot of it in the news obviously at the moment um sam asks are you seeing enough ppe in hospitals when you're working there okay so we did there was definitely there was a shortage and um we've tried to adapt by changing how we use ppe um and we're still i think that we're still learning about what optimal PPE is, PPE, personal protective equipment. Um, and yeah, there are several settings that the, the supply lines have been limited, um, but that there's definitely a new, lots of programs, lots of process at the moment to try to se secure those supply lines. Uh, but it is something that makes me anxious, definitely. 
What do you think about the um, campaigns, the crowdfunders, things like um, masks for NHS heroes? That it's 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 raised nearly one and a half million pounds at the moment, fronted by backed by you know celebrities such as James McAvoy. That that mm. sort of thing could be quite crucial, couldn't it, to get into get into the hospitals? So if the masks are homemade that they're not the kind of masks that will be used in the hospital um, but for for masks that are supplied by um, um, that the high quality masks that can protect um, healthcare workers um, are needed um, then there's two aspects of it funding potentially although a lot of funding is being diverted national funding government funding is being diverted to, to this but it's actually also the supply lines and actually getting hold of of the masks and getting them manufactured um, of course, I, I think it's fantastic, the, the huge um, support and motivation um, that, that um, the general public is showing. Uh, so fantastic. Yeah. Uh, just a few more. This one is from Anna. Um, new guidance from the British Medical Association says health workers may need to make grave decisions should hospitals come overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients, prioritising healthier patients to save lives at the expense of another, potentially. Um, she asks, how can it come to that? And what are your views? Yeah, this is, it's, it's very difficult. Um, we, this is not what anyone has gone into medicine to do, to be in this sort of situation um, where you might be treating patients where the resources are so limited that um, you need to make decisions about who should have access to those resources. And you might need to make decisions about um, protecting the population as a whole um, rather than um, your individual patient that's really the opposite way round to how we practice medicine um, and yes you're right the GMC has um, EMA has re released um, advice um, about you know how to think about those ethics um, and we're not at that stage yet in the UK um, but all of us are aware I think it's really challenging um, the issue is the resources. So if we had and have enough um, high dependency resources and, and ventilators and critical care support, then we won't be having to make such horrendous decisions. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's, it's all about the response. It's all about readiness. Um, obviously, it's about flattening the curve so that we don't get overwhelmed. And social distancing is, is crucial to, for that. It is, but it's also about readying ourselves for what is now an inevitable epidemic wave, which is on its way. The final question is from Ollie. He says, the symptoms for coronavirus are common at this time of year. How can we know it's not just a cold? Well, actually, for most people, we, we can't know, I'm afraid, because we're not testing everybody. And um, the coronavirus does have some similarity with cold, but it's, it's but, but, um, Typically, it does not cause a runny nose, a sniffly runny nose. And in most people, it also doesn't cause a sore throat. Um, but it, it does cause a cough or shortness of breath and fever. Uh, so people with those symptoms it could be caused by a myriad of other infections. A, we're not testing for those other infections. So we're not testing people for the common cold. We're not even testing for influenza widely. Um, and, and B, we're not testing people when they have symptoms unless they're unwell enough to need to come into hospital. So uh, even if you have symptoms and you're not sure what it is, it's still important if, the, if you fit the criteria for coronavirus, which is fever, shortness of breath or cough, 
to consider that it, it could be and probably is coronavirus and to isolate for seven days and for the whole household to isolate for 14 days after your symptoms start. Um, and that's important as well, because even if it isn't coronavirus, if it's just a, just a common cold, but you have coronavirus as well, asymptomatically, then because you've got a cold, you're more likely to transmit it. And lots of people will probably have asymptomatic coronavirus. So if you have a common cold and you also happen to have coronavirus, that's why it's more important to isolate, because when you have a cold, you project droplets more readily. Um, so, so it's the same action, basically, whether or not it's coronavirus, it's still important to isolate. Well, Chi, I think that's about all we have time for. Plenty of invaluable information, straight facts, a bit of myth busting there too. Really very useful. In general, any, any final advice for, for people listening? I think, yes. I, I, the, first of all, try to find a re, some really good sources of information because at the moment, most people are, are at home and are, look online a lot. And there's a lot of information that can either promote fear and can also be misinformation. So to look at some, there's some really, really good websites by um, 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 academic institutions, universities, and also the government and the WHO, and, and try to go to trusted resources for information um, and, and, get, and get information hot off the press in that way, rather than um, social media that may not be as reliable. Uh, secondly, definitely um, well-being is very important right now. Um, and so to reach in and find your personal resources and try to reach yourself and try not to let fear take over. Um, and I think we can all respond best in that way. Um, and thirdly, just yeah, um, aim to do what you can to keep yourself well. So to, um, you know, what, like I was saying, to um, focus on boosting your immune system with with keeping yourself healthy with good good diet exercise and, and sleep focus on the sleep great thank you for coming on I'll, I'll speak for many i'm sure when i say everyone is so thankful for all the work people like yourselves your colleagues and all in the nhs are doing so we don't take that for granted thank you um, once again um, that's about it for this week's podcast but we'll be back next week if you're new to our podcast you can subscribe and find us in all the usual podcast apps like apple Podcasts, spotify and tune in just search university of brighton thanks for listening